Hey everybody, this is Craig Cottle, Director of Nature Blind School and co-host of the Survival Show Podcast. Thanks for joining me for another interview with what is a legend in the bushcraft community, Mr. Moores Kahansky. Moores and I chatted for a while about an, quite a range of topics. First, we're going to be going into a discussion on the bushcraft, bushcraft global symposium that is going to be bringing together literally some of the best instructors throughout the world together to teach a series of courses and classes. And Morse is going to talk about his role in that and what he's going to be doing there. I also chatted with Moores about how he got started into bushcraft, how he got started into teaching bushcraft and how all that plays out. And just because I had to, I discussed with him at length the ability skill of going about teaching outdoor skills because this is a gentleman that has multiple, multiple decades of experience doing such things. And so I bent his ear on all of those topics and a lot more. So with that said, here's Morris Kahansky. So Morris, uh, you've had a lifetime of experience doing what it is that you do. So tell us about the symposium that's coming up. It's a a five-day event. Uh, We were trying to get every uh, uh, important person in the field of wilderness skills and survival to be aware. So there's quite a few big names showing up. It's a a pretty nice setting. Uh, We're familiar with it. Uh, so <laughs> I actually don't have that much to do with it outside every once in a while I've promoted it because uh, there are other people that are organizing it and so on. You know, being almost 80 years old, right. I uh, sort of uh, can't stand the stress of <laughs> getting too intimately involved with the, these sort of things. But but basically the symposium is meant to uh, get together everybody that sees themselves as an important contributor to survival, perhaps uh, at the top of the list, wilderness living skills, people who have authored books, uh, and so on. Uh, this is kind of an event that hasn't occurred for a few years, I think. Yeah, good. So I'm assuming you're going to be teaching there, right? Oh, yes. Uh, my team is uh, uh, all the uh, unique things that I think I contributed, you know, things uh, in the event, uh, you know, especially in the inventive uh, area, you know, like the super shelter and the flip-flop winch and uh, and many of those sort of things that over the years I worked a great deal to refine, like the Roycroft ski shoe and the pack frame all of these. So I'm sort of giving a workshop so that if people are keen on wanting to know more information on me and exactly what my contributions were, that's the sort of thing I'm doing. I'm setting up a kind of a permanent display in um, quarter scale. Uh, so it'd be easy for me to underline what I'm trying to say. And I go quarter scale on account that it's easier to to pack all these uh, this in a vehicle and and uh, a lot of the props would uh, would require a semi if I if they were full scale so right that's right. the way I, it's Good. a lot of talking and a, a lot of pointing uh, of what I mean what I'm saying because I have a quarter scale device there to make things easier to understand that people can take digital pictures of uh, the sort of stuff that's the whole intent sure sure that makes it those make really nice teaching tools. 
So do you normally teach that way, or is that just something for this particular symposium? Oh, I normally dabble with that. Uh, part of the programs, which predominantly most of my income has been derived in teaching teachers how to teach outdoor ed and teaching directly with the kids themselves. So uh, I gain a lot of experience in the uh, area from kindergarten to grade 12 directly with the students. And then I turn around and, and suggest to the teachers how they go about making uh, the knowledge concerning nature and the out of doors and outdoor safety and survival and all that, how to uh, bring it across. And of course, right. we understand that outdoors people are quite visual. You know, one way you can show pictures, another way, you, you know, the ideal thing is to to have the actual full-sized demonstration done there, but that's not convenient sometimes. Uh, the other thing, too, is that as a training ploy, when you're working in the uh, school system with children, uh, they respond very favorably to scale modeling. And, and for example... Uh, if you wanted to really get a good basis of knowledge on traps, deadfalls, and snares, if you build them quarter scale, uh, or a canoe even, a birch bark canoe, if it's a quarter scale, it's four feet long instead of being 16 feet long, uh, you, you end up with, uh, learning just about every little thing you have to know to make it work, because, uh, uh, the quarter scale still allows that. But, uh, yeah, I use that a great deal in my, in my life. Uh, mainly because, too, is that I'm so terrible in the area of taking videos and uh, taking pictures uh, in my own case. All the work that I've done on uh, social media and whatever, uh, that's attributable to Karamat and Randy doing all the videoing. But myself, I, I seem to have a terrible time to take as many pictures as I should have. But I'm guessing you're probably focused in on the students, which is a good thing. It's hard to take pictures when you're actually teaching people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You almost have to employ someone to be taking the pictures. Exactly. Uh, so uh, pausing for photography uh, it interferes. With, well, if you're being paid uh, to do what you do, then maybe ethically you, you're you taking more, you know, you're you're hogging the issue more than you should be. Right. I, I always thought when working with people that if they're paying me, I'm there with them. I don't want to be trying to make money elsewhere. I want to be present with the people that I'm working with. Is that kind of where you're coming yeah, from? Yeah, that's probably uh, everybody likes that. <laughs> right. So uh, it seems like you got a good team there at Caramat. They're good at helping you and, and making sure everything's done right, and, and they do the things that you don't feel comfortable with and maybe vice versa. Yeah, well, when I was getting on in, in years, uh, I was uh, working, uh, you know, the, the issue of being an active uh, freelance and running courses and uh, the, you know, uh, I, I always tended to work by myself. I never had, you know, a secretary or that sort of stuff. And when I mentioned to Karamat, uh, if somebody else would take over, the advertising and the arranging and the gathering and the, the, the groceries. I just uh, showed up as an instructor uh, and uh, put in my work as an instructor without having to do everything else. I would continue keeping my hand in it, and so that's what uh, uh, Karamat 
a lot of people figure I own it. No, uh, <laughs> I, I just instruct for Caramat. Caramat does all the advertising, and all the arranging, and all the. Lori is uh, kept fairly busy, uh, being the the person who mans the phones and does the does the bookings and all that sort of stuff. And uh, me, I just show up and and uh, directly do the instructing. Well, that so sounds that, good. Uh, that way you focus on what you need to be focused on, which which makes for a better experience for everybody, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, if I if I had to be engaged in the ringer barrel of running a school of sorts, I, I would just I would probably find it just more economical maybe uh, to fade into uh, the option that I always figured was open was to uh, uh, write a lot of books on the subject, which I just too lazy to haven't gotten beyond a couple, uh, mm-hmm. few. Uh, basically, the intent was that I would withdraw from the act of uh, instructing and arranging, and and put all my effort into uh, publishing books and and getting uh, royalties from that. Right. So, h- how many years have you been doing all this, Morris? I, I I don't know exactly how many. Uh, I know it's been a long time, but how many? <laughs> well, it must be around forty years. Uh, there was two things that I did to make a living one for many years there was a surveyor you know land surveys and then when i found that i was away from home too much i uh, became a, a welfare officer some people call it social work so the last five years of regular employment um i was a uh, uh, worked for the government as a social worker and uh, during the latter few Years, uh, I discovered the outdoor education movement uh, was starting to establish itself. Or so around the mid '60s. So I think it probably I um, I actually quit working for the government in 1971 there, and from that point on, I called myself a freelance instructor because I made my living. So I went from uh, one employer to 52 employers, you might say. <laughs> the freelance, you got a different person uh, hiring you for practically every weekend. Right. And, of course, everything changed from working that much during the week as uh, trying to make a living uh, on uh, Saturday and Sundays because it's the nature of that sort of work. So, so basically... Uh, uh, I did exclusively outdoor education, primarily teaching teachers how to teach, uh, you know, about the outdoors. Uh, and of that, uh, a small fraction was my passion, which was modern survival. Uh, but there aren't that many people, uh, uh, you know, who are available to teach survival exclusively. But even a grandmother will sign on for a course on how to craft cattail dolls. And the cattail doll made such a big difference that I was able to be employed in this field because it played such a big role in teaching from kindergarten to grade 12 in a meaningful way that uh, people figure that the uh, expense and trouble you go to, uh, that's a specialty. And teachers... Uh, just generally, even if they took out the red, they often would find that they would have to develop their 
abilities to incorporate nature as heavily as as it should be with regard with the benefit to the student population right so how long did it take before you felt comfortable doing that as a living well the uh the situation was that when i decided to quit working as a welfare officer by then i had uh, probably 3 or 4 years where I had the opportunity to make people aware that I was available. And there are many things that occurred that were sort of uh, uh, flukes of of good luck in that uh, uh, when I worked for an outdoor education center and discovered that I had taught 20 consecutive weekends and my family uh, never saw me, that's where I thought maybe I could quit one I didn't have to quit and burn my bridges, but uh, when I, it's a scary move to to quit from a regular job or you're working towards a pension and you've got all the bells and whistles with regard to your you know medical insurance and all that. So to become a freelance, uh, as you say, you now are being paid by a large number of groups of people or agencies. Well. Well, this Blue Lake Center was run by the government when it began to develop to meet the needs of the, you know, essentially the way simply you would say is teaching people how to teach uh, outdoor skills, which would range from canoeing and kayaking and skiing and uh, wild plants and uh, survival and crafting and all that sort of stuff. Well, well, I found that I had enough of a broad experience that uh, if I, you know, like, for example, uh, they used to teach uh, about mushrooms. And then one day they phoned me and said that the instructor can't show up. Uh, (laughs) Is it possible you could take over the class? (laughs) Well, I never ever set my objectives to becoming an instructor that uh, would uh, uh, run courses on mycology on on, mushrooms. uh, the mushrooms, but I said, well, you know, this is what I know, and you can take a chance. And uh, and I discovered that there was n- there was no problem conducting yeah. a course, even though I wasn't a graduated uh, uh, specialist in, in mycology. Uh, right. I was uh, the, I, to this situation. I brought my instructional abilities and how you organize your your knowledge and present it. So all I had to do is just uh, do that for mushrooms. And I knew about 20 mushrooms. And by the time I ran the courses over the years, I I probably uh, increased my mushroom knowledge to knowing 300 mushrooms instead of just 30, <laughs> you might sure. say. So, I mean, uh, is it correct to say that doing everything you can to become a better teacher is also part of being uh, continuing to always be a good student? Is that Do you view it that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like for example, I'd find that people who would sign up for a course, the sum total of knowledge, uh, you know, so when I was, I had the challenge of trying to teach about mushrooms, uh, there were people who signed up for the course who would uh, know how to use keys. And so on. they sign up because they're interested uh, in that subject but they're quite knowledgeable and if you know how you can exploit that knowledge for the benefit of the group uh, because all you're doing is orchestrating you see a mushroom 
and you point at it and, and you say, anybody know uh, what that mushroom is? And uh, the, the group of students, one of them does. <laughs> right. So I don't have to even have to come to the course knowing that mushroom because <laughs> I might be able to depend on some student who already, uh, you know, can identify it for us all. And I don't know it, but they, the students don't know it. Uh, because they figure that's my teaching style, and I'm orchestrating a, an approach where I I can uh, get more benefit from the students themselves than just me being the sole contributor sure. to to that subject. Uh, and, so it sounds uh, like you had a uh, uh, come together type of mindset. Everybody learns together. Uh, you you just get to be the yeah. orchestrator or the director of it, if you will. Yeah. Well, in my day, where would you go to take lessons on how to sharpen, how to sharpen a knife? You know, there's uh, likely you, you would have to find some individual that that is known to the general public that they have something to do with sharpening. Well, you but if you are running a course, uh, you know, the chances are, well, maybe not every course, but eventually you run into somebody that that uh, has spent a lot of effort in learning how to sharpen. Right. And so you pick their their brain. Sure. So generally sure. I didn't know how to sharpen a knife until I was using a knife and I was complaining that I neglected to sharpen it. And a student throws down his knife and says, here, try mine. I don't want to pick it up, but I, you know, since the student has thrown it there in front of me, I pick it up and I can't believe how, uh, uh, you know, what a sharp edge is all about because I've never right. ever reached that stage of sharpness. Uh, the knife that I picked up that the student threw in front of me, I immediately uh, uh, recognized that here's a sharp tool. And right. so now I pick his brains and uh, using that process, you do it a few times and you find that the information that you get from people who struggle at the subject uh, compared to people who are anxious to write an article in a magazine on how to sharpen, uh, you get a far higher quality of, of knowledge that way. So so it took uh, years to develop an approach that became flawless and foolproof because I, I happened to, the, the very first, uh, shortly after I quit to be a freelance, I got hired on by the university, which meant that through the almost 25 years of getting, well, probably maybe 100 students every year, the classes are about 30, and I would at least run 30 different classes so you you have a large uh, population to instruct, and the feedback that comes back uh, is very valuable because you're if you've got thirty students and you watch carefully, you'll see some student is doing something that you uh, you know have to do, and they're doing it so much better than you <laughs> right right I understand I understand very well. <laughs> So you turn around and, and uh, build on that. It's a kind of a technique where, where uh, recognizing that someone is doing something more skillfully than you, and you can turn it gracefully to the benefit of the class, uh, you know, without making you know too much for all. But anyway, 
uh, having uh, uh, large groups of people to teach and to be tried and tested through instructorship, uh, that was a very big issue with me that uh, that I was barely a few steps ahead of the students when I started. And with time, I began to gain ground and be, you know, a year ahead or, or so by the right. time I... Uh, by the time I uh, retired from teaching at the university, then uh, and, uh, then from the university I stepped into another job that la- lasted 17 years. So between 23 and 17, that uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know that's a career. Yeah, um, absolutely. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So the first 23 years uh, after I quit a regular job, the university programs terminated changed to the point where I couldn't contribute anymore, and then I stepped into a school district where, uh, they're, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, they just informed me uh, a few days ago that they, the college in that school district is going to give me an honorary degree in, oh, very uh, nice. in uh, uh, arts and science. <laughs> so along the way, Morris, has there been anything that uh, would probably be classified as a as a mistake maybe that you've made that you've learned a lot from anything in particular jump out at you a mistake yes sir oh there are some embarrassments yeah you might say because you learn you learn uh you know there are little things that come in that no big deal uh, the issue of what's a signal mirror <laughs> Yeah. You know, I used to think that the cheapest signal mirror is a locker mirror cut in half and drill a hole into that little plastic mirror. And I figured that would be an adequate signal mirror until I made a class set and had students use them and discovered that, uh, the, uh, you know, why signal mirrors are made of the glass and, and all kinds of stuff. But uh, I had promoted that probably for about, like, 15, 20 years. And realized that uh, that would have been better that I had not come up with that idea of how to make a cheap <laughs> signal mirror out of a, a locker mirror, plastic locker mirror. Right. But there are well, there are little things. Uh, you know, the issue is that you do your best. Sometimes you get into situations where you you know you you could almost say, well, do you really know what you're talking about? And uh, if you have to instruct, you have to instruct. And later you find out that maybe the opposite was far better, uh, but that's the option. You always have the opportunity to to uh, do you, what you can at the best you can uh, because you don't know any better. But uh, as your knowledge increases, you discover the, the opposite of what you are teaching uh, it works far better. <laughs> That's happened occasionally. Uh, but it's it's got to be something where somebody such as yourself has control of their own ego where, you know, you can admit that and move forward instead of 
you know, it seems like some people get so tied up into their own ego that they, they can't let go of something that they've done like that. And they, and they just try to keep pushing that idea. And, and I don't see the value in that. I'm assuming you feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah. You, you meet a lot of people that have a, a badge and it says survival instructor and uh, they have nothing to say to you <laughs> in my early days. Uh, you know, you're working with the scouts and, and uh, the youth movements and so on. You often have people that uh, uh, take up the role of becoming a survival instructor, but they really aren't. They're not officially. They, there's a need to be filled, so they filled it, but they really didn't have the background to do a, a professional job. Right. Uh, yeah, and there there are... Uh, in the military, I would say maybe I don't want to alienate military. You tend to you tend to find more people that are uncomfortable in the presence of other instructors because they're you know there's something there that uh, plays a role in in their ego. Right. Uh, but it, it's something you can live with. I always generally find that. Uh, uh, human uh, people who are anxious to learn a lot about the out of doors, you find that they're usually fairly nice people. You don't find very many mean and and uh, uh, people that go out of their way to misinform. I agree. It seems like nature itself just is is something that brings people together more than it does tear us apart. It, it to me, that it, it's it's so vast that it just there's so much to learn that a lot of people just simply recognize that and we can just it's all a learning process that just continues to grow yeah yeah you have to have an attitude that you know what you know currently and it can always stand uh, a bit of improvement if you have the right attitude you realize after a while that no matter uh, what you're into you know like one of the biggest um, uh, issues that I became involved in was the, the what we call the super shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I studied how an igloo uh, was built and how it functioned. Uh, that I thought, what if I tried to imitate all the things that an igloo uh, has in its structure without snow, you know, using fabric shelters that uh, are shiny and and porous and reflect uh, you know, all kinds of things and it seemed to the science seemed to work i was able to transfer the concept that makes a, a snow shelter and an igloo work uh, eventually i was able to imitate that with you know parachute and polyethylene and mylar and all that sort of stuff but it took about 10 years from the moment that the idea began to develop until you ended up saying there isn't anything more you can add to this, if you know what I mean. So everything that you are involved in, whether it's sharpening a knife, the the more often uh, you sharpen it, and if you resharpen a sharp knife, it gets sharper. (laughs) <laughs> but but it's the uh, the issue is that you make a living demonstrating to people and uh, you interact with the people as you see uh, that uh, readily they understand what you're trying to say uh, and uh, the acid test is that in a few hours the student is able to shave with their knife and that is due to your approach to teaching them the subject so right. You know, in the early days, 
that student might require a couple of days before they shave. Now, if I cut to the chase, maybe in four hours of sharpening, you have achieved a razor's edge. So, you know, that sort of a thing develops. So the more you teach it with an open mind to improve on it, the greater the quality of the information that the student picks up in the shortest time. That's what tells you where you're going mm-hmm. because uh, your presentation becomes so flawless that you can achieve uh, this sort of thing, whether it's tying a knot or teaching a person how to build a comfortable shelter or or whatever, uh, you're anxious to get the student to pick that up in the shortest time possible, and then you can make a living. (laughs) So I'm going to change gears on you a little bit here, Morris. I I live here in Kentucky in the U.S., uh, which is, you know, know, southeastern United States, some some call it Midwestern. What's the big difference for somebody like me that does outdoor activities here compared to to what you do? What if if I came up to you and trained with you guys, what would I be missing? What's what's hard about a boreal forest that that I need to know about coming up there? Yeah, well, they um if in a few days you fly up to the Arctic Circle and someone teaches you how to build an igloo, you might find that the uh, the type of knowledge that an architect has to know in building a house, no matter whether it's at the uh, North Pole or South Pole or or uh, or whether it's at the equator, uh, the uh, things you have to take into account are all the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you just have a different combination that you've got to apply to be able to achieve what you're, uh, you know, what you need in order to create a, a, a shelter, a home. So it's whether it's to do with thermal mass and, and reflectivity, emissivity, the inverse cube law, <laughs> the, you're, you're dealing with energy uh, and you've got to capture the warmth. So essentially a human uh, finds that uh, one way to cope in a given climate, you wear clothes, and uh, you have the option to not wear any clothes at the equator and wear a lot of clothes at the uh, 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 in the Arctic. Uh, but the physics is the same, and uh, and as you get into colder regions, you become more concerned to supplement your clothing. So so you create a, a micro environment. So the Eskimos are very cunning. They create a tropical microenvironment using snow as the construction material that captures the warmth to create that microclimate that uh, causes you to strip down to your waist and enjoy getting away from wearing you know, a lot of clothing in a certain circumstance. So people are always concerned about coming here and learning about the plants, for example. Because they surely the plants are very different. And I say the issue is that you never pass up an opportunity to learn about another plant because that adds to your sum total of understanding of plants. So if you come and visit me and and learn a hundred plants that don't grow in your neck of the woods, uh, it's hard to put your finger on it, but uh, eventually you realize that the benefit of that uh, because it, it focuses your attention 
You know, mm-hmm. you know the plant doesn't grow there, but uh, uh, many of the plants have relatives that do. And probably half of what you learn about my plants can be applied to your plants, uh, whether it's terminology or or structure or or function or whatever. And and when you get into plants and you have the attitude that every plant uh, is another ruby to add to your knowledge, no matter where it is, that's where you benefit the greatest. But most people are their own worst enemy because it takes a long time to to crack that shell. You keep saying every time you look at another plant, it doesn't grow where I grow, why should I bother learning it? Well, you're your own worst enemy when you have that attitude instead of saying, hey, I have another plant, even though it's uh, bizarrely different from what what I'm familiar with, it's still uh, worth to make the effort to learn what it is because it makes you that much more knowledgeable world-wise about plants and it allows you a greater insights into relationships and, and, and things like that. So anyway, do I know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I, I think you do, Morris. I, 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 I don't think there's any question with that, Morris, at all. I don't think there's any question at all. So, um, which is a great answer. Thank you for taking the time to, to answer that for me. Let's, let's get back to the symposium just a little bit. Who else is going to be joining you up there to be teaching? Who else is uh, that I know of? Well, mm-hmm. Do you know uh, who else is coming yet? Yeah, Lars Fault uh, from Sweden. He he was the head of the survival training programs in the Swedish Army, and he uh, co-authored and authored more than half a dozen books, maybe seven or eight books. Uh, he paid my way to Sweden a number of times to contribute to the the, the various uh, events there. Um, I would say uh, he might be the highest ranking uh, person of all the people that I know in the world. Um, Oh, another fellow, uh, he's actually visiting me for a while beforehand, uh, Patrick McGlinchey. Mm -hmm. He's uh, from Scotland. He tends to uh, to uh, investigate the artifacts of the ab- Aboriginal people, the art and artifacts. So, so he makes exquisite uh, full-scale models of everything he learns. Oh wow! Um, then there is uh, uh, Tom Luchens. He's from Spokane. He he uh, spent. Uh, his career as a survival instructor for the United States Air Force. He's going to be there, I'm sure. Um, oh, uh, Les Stroud, uh, he's written a number of books. He's a Canadian from Ontario. Uh, he definitely is coming. Uh, nice. Well, uh, there, are, there, are, there are people that I know of, but I've never met. There seems to be quite a few uh, people there. Um, well, that list right there is you know, a who's who of, of bushcraft and survival right there. I mean, that's uh, yeah, quite I would a collection. Right whoever comes to the symposium is probably going to meet probably, no, I don't know, maybe 40 people that either renown as instructors or written books and that sort of stuff and, and uh, made a career. You know, it's it's not a easy thing to uh, 
you know, people often ask me, how did I manage to quit a regular job and still raise a family and put butter and bread and butter on the table? Uh, it's not open to just anybody. Uh, when I, I, I was one of the few people 40 years ago that took the step to, to feel that I, I, uh, if I let fear, uh, uh, keep me from doing what I did, well, that would have been a very uh, boring existence <laughs> being a uh, clerk in a hardware store. Right. Yeah, that's... Or uh, maybe working for a sports shop. <laughs> exactly. Right. So what kind of... Uh, if For those that are listening to our show, they uh, there's a lot of folks that are beginning their, you know, getting on the trail for the first time on studying survival and bushcraft and what have you. What would be your biggest piece of advice for those people? Well, I guess you, uh, you, you know, if you're going to make a living at it, uh, like I had such good luck that that the university chose to hire me for uh, for the many years uh, based on, uh, uh, you know, I went to university. I went to military college for two years and then four years to university. So that higher level of education is about, what was it, six years, and I never got any degrees uh, because my thought was that I, you know, the, when I went to university, I structured my own program because I said, what do I need to know? Because I uh, made the resolve that I was going to write, uh, become a writer and write books. Right. And so I said, well, what do I have to learn to become a writer? So that's one of the, uh, you know, where the areas where I was very receptive and aggressively tried to pick up the knowledge that a writer needs. Uh, but it turned out that uh, I was able to make a living by instructing because there was such a large an, an amount of people available anxious to learn uh, you know, it's obvious that a person says, oh, I like to canoe. Maybe there's some merit in uh, taking canoeing courses to become skilled at canoeing. I address the issue of, of specializing in uh, developing the uh, knowledge that teachers should have that want to teach outdoor ed. So a teacher... Uh, might start by saying, okay, uh, got to teach kids how to dress so we can go hiking and backpacking. Uh, uh, part of uh, the science program might be uh, that we should learn uh, as many of the plants that we find growing nearby. Well, that should be part of our education. Um, and, and, and basically, whatever you got from scouts, and girl guides from the <laughs> from the youth movements that you wouldn't pick up in school. You know, where would you uh, find knots being taught in a school curriculum? Uh, they expected you to join uh, the scouts or, or girl guides and and pick up your knots there. School isn't going to participate in that. So uh, the issue of the youth movements was that. Uh, uh, in my way of thinking, the idea came up that if the kids learned how to take care of themselves in, in the issue of camping, uh, then uh, 
by the time you graduate out of grade 12, you might have as much knowledge as a soldier who would laboriously have to spend his first year as a recruit learning how to take care of themselves. Whereas uh, mm-hmm. if we would right. promote that and the scouts take it up and they, they uh, you know, they acquire all those skills that a soldier needs, when you need soldiers, it's already done for you, you know, that sort of stuff. But anyway, sure. uh, the issue of uh, safety, um, we all know that a lot of people would get lost and in a very short time perish. And so that was one of the things is how to learn to uh, cope with the environmental stresses that cause the human body to shut down if the person doesn't know how to handle those stresses. So they call that survival. Yeah. And then if you enjoy camping and going, getting away from home and, uh, and live like a gypsy, well, uh, a lot of people enjoy that. They get back to their primeval roots uh, and everybody enjoys well, everybody worries the apocalypse could be a problem, so maybe uh, learn the wild edible plants so that they're available in the garden isn't, uh, on and on. So there's a huge area that has recently opened up where, where if you advertise that you can teach how to relate to the mushrooms, to the wild plants, to the... the, right. to the, uh, the uh, what is that... Uh, a geocaching, <laughs> uh, yeah. hunting, you know, a lot of people realize maybe you know, there's some merit in, in rubbing shoulders with a person who knows how to shoot a moose or a deer or a bear or whatever, which is a problem we have that is driving us crazy because a bear last fall discovered uh, leftover crab trees and climbed and, and uh, spent enough spent a few weeks living off of our crab apples and now he comes crab back in the fall expecting. and uh, so of course we our dog food and cat food and <laughs> all that and all the wow. garbage is stored out is uh, uh, just a, a, a real nuisance a creature that that strong really does a lot of damage ripping doors apart and, sure and, yeah uh, absolutely Ripping siding off your <laughs> off your off your storage sheds. So, but you, anyway, you, you mentioned that you you know you somewhat got started thinking you were going to be a writer. Do you, are you going to be writing anymore, or are you you still focusing most of your attention on instruction of others and and not writing? You, are you going to put another? Book yeah, I I, uh, well, I still appear. Uh, put up guest appearances if they uh, make it worth my while financially. But, uh, yeah, the focus is, uh, uh, I hope to re- write a half dozen books, and I'm sort of working on it. Uh, there's, uh, there's, I actually uh, have just about completed a 400-page book on clothing. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, the, the, the type of book that if you're a clothing designer, you would really want to get a hold of that. But the title of the book is, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the issue of, how to dress uh, uh, the the physics of the clothing that provides the, provides the protection and the physiology of the human body that requires the protection. So 
so that, that's I, I haven't really completed a, a title yet, and I have no idea if any publisher would uh, take a chance on such a specific topic. But there are thousands of books on, on fashion, but very little on the actual physics. So I, you know, like as usual, when I uh, wanted some references to write a chapter on clothing and survival, I found that that there was no book that I could refer to, I had to write that book. And that is, I had to gain the knowledge of the equivalent of a 400-page book so that I could write the chapter in the, in the survival manual that, I still, that I'm working on. Uh, and it's probably three-quarters done, maybe even, uh, maybe even nine-tenths done. It's all on the computer. Because uh, over the years, every time there was a lull, I would hammer out some articles. You know, like right now, I'm sort of working on snakes. You know, there is no snakes where I live. But uh, every once in a while, I find myself in southern Alberta where there are snakes. And I (laughs) say to myself, I don't really know how to conduct myself properly in snake country. Uh, So so there's be a chapter on it. That helps you learn, right? Yeah, well, the... uh, uh, there's a lot of it. I've collected the information, and it's just, uh, you know, how, you know, my my thinking is that if I start trying to illustrate every snake that you want to recognize, instead I'm going to say, when you see a snake, this is how you act, no matter whether it's a cobra or a rattlesnake <laughs> or or a garter snake, you uh, you act the same way. So up up in the country where there is no no dangerous snakes. Uh, you still uh, one day find yourself uh, in 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 dangerous snake country, and you don't know how to conduct yourself because you um, you know if you know what I mean. So that's the challenge: is to write an article from that perspective, as opposed to saying, "Well, here's a list of dangerous snakes, and here's where you're going to find them." Well, I'm going to say that here is dangerous snake country, and here is snake safe snake country. And but still, a snake can grab a hole of your finger, and it won't let go. <laughs> Very and true. we do have snakes. If you you know where they can get down below the frost level, within a few miles of where I live, uh, and they, and they're about two or three feet long, and they're still intimidating, but they're not rattlers. Right. Anyway, that's an example. There's about 150 topics that I uh, I figure is, uh, uh, you know, you got to stop and think about, you know, we do have dangerous spiders. We have ticks and we have mosquitoes and we have black flies and and all that is sort of changing with the climate. The more dangerous creatures tend to come further north uh, as the climate warms. We didn't have raccoons until about uh, 20 years ago. Didn't have water. And now they're they're kind of common what because the climate for? allows them to live here the uh, twelve months of the year. What is that that lives there now? What is that? What did you say? Raccoon. Oh, okay. Wow, interesting. Okay. Yeah, raccoons are very rare in Canada. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Same as turtles. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, Moore's, this has been great, man. I have I have really enjoyed the opportunity to talk to you, sir. This has been really, really enlightening for me in many ways, and I'm sure our listeners will like it too. 
I've enjoyed this uh, this talk too. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll uh, we'll make sure when we get this this together, I'll make sure all your good folks up there know about it. And if you want to listen in, you can listen in too and hear yourself talk. I don't know if you like doing that or not. <laughs> well, it's it's fine. Last time I did a podcast, the people were up from your part of the country. Yes, sir. And while we were doing it, they experienced. Uh, uh, a tremor, earthquake tremor. Oh wow! Okay. I was one of the few, you know, I was probably the first Canadian that knew that that was happening in 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 South Carolina or wherever. Yeah. <laughs> because we were on the phone when that happened. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. No, no earthquakes today for me. Well, more this has been great. I, I had a fantastic talk to you. I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk to me and, and I'm sure the symposium is going to be a huge success with you being there. So I really would appreciate it. We'll help you get the word out and tell everybody we can about it. Yeah. The, uh, the people are really just, uh, they expected more, uh, more people to sign up, but, uh, but that there's still a few, you know, almost what, uh, a month and a half yet, but almost two months. Oh, there's so, plenty of time. It's, it's always my experience that people wait, very very late to sign up for anything anymore. So you all be y'all be filled up. You all have plenty of people up there. Sure. Well, thanks, Moore. You have a wonderful day. Okay. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you, sir. Same here. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye.